0: Hey, welcome back. It's the Bill Bennett Show. Glad you joined us. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump. If you need translation, we're here. Sometimes he's plain as he can be and doesn't need any. Right. Makes your job easy on the podcast. Makes
1: our job easy on the
0: podcast. Sometimes we just talk about it, comment Mm -hmm. on it, play it. Uh, We take a look, a serious look, at the threats to America, the existential threats to America, both abroad and at home. We discuss some of the news of the day. We pick and choose. And we talk about what that means to you and for you. Joining me today on this episode of the show is Joel Farkas. You've heard from Joel before about California, about energy, about American competitiveness. Uh, He's a director of the American Strategy Group. Full disclosure, I am a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. We'll also catch up with Gordon Chang. Gordon Chang uh, will discuss uh, with me the China trade talks, President Trump's second visit to North Korea, and China's involvement in our hemisphere. Claude, I, I don't have a ton to say today. Events speak for themselves, and our guests, Joel Farkas and Gordon Chang, speak very well for themselves. Mm-hmm. I'll also confess to you and to my audience, which I'm very candid with. i got a cold, cough, voice isn't too strong, so I don't want to prolong it and strain it. Got to go to a wedding this weekend, Florida. Mm-hmm. Black tie, I do without that. <laughs> uh, then uh, be in New York for some things with Fox. You know, um, the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, two other things I wanted to mention. It looks like the Diocese of Covington, Kentucky, has right, now saw said that. They mm-hmm. well, don't find fault with the boys. Well, right, it's about time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, again, I, I'm watching that lawsuit. I, I hope something happens there. We got to break through on this. Uh, these kids were slandered all over the world. And, and it was wrong, falsely based. And boy, they have a right cause of action, seems to me. But we'll see. I'll, I'll leave that to the lawyers. Uh, these freshmen are, uh, freshman Democrats are uh, full of vinegar, and some of it acid. Uh, I noticed this uh, Congresswoman Omar, who oh, had to apologize Minnesota, for yeah. the anti-Semitic comments. Enough's been said about that. You don't need me to do it. But uh, a Jew who appeared before her, Elliot Abrams, my old friend from the State Department in Reagan days, is now the special envoy to Venezuela, and she was giving him a very tough time. And he wasn't taking it, and he talked back to her. And I'm glad he did. He stood right up to her. But this is a uh, pugnacious and ornery and um, nasty uh, group in some in some particulars and in some individuals. We'll see. Some of them are reasonable and sensible, but I, I think we're going to see... Uh, an inject uh, injection of uh, not only a Democrat majority, but uh, some really nasty, um, low-shooting Democrats here, liberals, and uh, we'll see how this goes. The 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 hatred for Trump is now right out there in the open. And We're going to have two years of this, and you know, elections what twenty months away. That's, right, that's it, isn't it? So we're we're in full election gear, but I, I just – I don't know how much temperature
1: – how much hotter the temperature can be. What do you, what do you think? Yeah. No, I mean, well, if it can get hotter, we're going to see. If you don't stand against everything Trump stands for, I think if you're a Democrat and you're somewhat moderate, you stand at risk of being kicked out of your own party and being shunned. I mean it's
0: – You know, I noticed that with the announcement, Amy Klobuchar, who is very
1: liberal. Mm-hmm.
0: Senator from Minnesota, they're portraying her as a moderate. One of the things they're
1: showing is that she voted with Trump 31% of the time. My God. It's got to, it's, it's, you got to vote with Trump less than 2% of the time in order to not be kicked out of your party. It's
0: the naming of post offices, you Mm -hmm. know, and I mean, defense appropriations. Right. It's madness. It's sheer madness. Uh, he is driving them crazy, and um, he does not seem to be driven crazy. He just seems to be, you know, himself and relatively mm-hmm. content. But the nastiness is, I think, going to increase. My big political questions, the one I raised in the piece we're going to put up uh, about the appeal of the socialism. This was the last right. Fox News mm-hmm. piece.
1: It's, it's uh, already on Facebook, your Facebook page and, and Twitter. Okay. It's already there. Yep. Well, this
0: is miraculous We'll reshare to me. it
1: if we need to. We'll, we'll reshare it. It. we—is that like refriending? Uh, no, no, no. That's just sharing something again that you already shared. Well, that would make sense. For right. The definition of resharing. Right. Sharing it again. Correct. Thank you.
0: Uh, <laughs> I got a PhD. You know, I should have figured that out for myself. Um, is is the uh, political appeal of these ideas? I just don't know. As uh, I mentioned in conversation, people will hear in my conversation uh, with Joel Farkas. Uh, you know, Conrad Black and I are having a kind of exchange in print. On this, uh, we might put up his piece where he okay. talks about this conversation sure. with a former cabinet member, and then he gets into a very long and very thoughtful discourse on the French Revolution. And he thinks that uh, the left has gone lunatic, and some of the ideas are loony, but a lot of people are buying them. Oh yeah, Will sure. they buy them in six months, eight months, 12 months? I don't know. People say, well, time, they'll see this, they'll sober up. Time may intensify the passion and the irrationality. I don't, I don't know. I don't know which way this is going. All I'm saying is don't just dismiss these ideas out of hand. Deal with them. Analyze them. Take them apart. Show what's wrong with uh, the notion that you can simply get rid of fossil fuels or you can get rid of airplanes or you can have single payer at a reasonable cost uh, because uh, these things need to be debated and analyzed to the ground.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think the worst thing you can do is take it lightly because it's foolishness or ridiculousness and and think that it's just going to go away. It won't. Right, right, right. All right. Well,
0: uh, let's get to these interviews because uh, they're good and they're worthwhile. And again, we thank everybody for listening. Send us your emails. We'd love to hear from you. Maybe next week we'll read some emails. Absolutely. com. You're listening to the Bill, Bennett show.
1: the Bill Bennett Show.
0: Welcome Gordon Chang to the show. He's the author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Tell us about uh, Xi Jinping and his wife attending a... Uh, A rare performance of North Korean singers and dancers in Beijing. Why is that important?
2: That's important because it shows that Xi Jinping and China itself is supporting Kim Jong-un. And I think that it was a message uh, to the United States that uh, they've got to deal with China. In the past, uh, we've sent so many secretaries of state to Beijing to plead for Chinese cooperation on North Korea. And because of that, the Chinese get concessions from us. So I think that what they're doing is essentially saying to President Trump, you've got to deal with me. And, and unfortunately, um, many people in Washington still buy into that notion.
0: Do you think uh, this administration is being naive about uh, Kim Jong-un?
2: I don't think the administration is being naive, but I do think they're being overly generous. Um, President Trump before the Singapore summit last June, actually said what he was trying to do. He said he's going to give Kim a one-time shot to do the right thing. And so he wanted to give Kim an atmosphere that he felt so secure that he would be willing to give up his most dangerous weapons. Now, we've seen in the intervening eight months that there has been really little inclination on the part of the North Korean regime to surrender nukes or missiles. They've been ramping up the production of fissile material, They've been working on their facilities for missiles and nuclear weapons. And this is inconsistent with the administration's assumption that Kim is dealing with them in good faith. I think that essentially President Trump is going to sort of give Kim a little bit more time, um, but then lower the hammer on the North Koreans. And, And that's what we should be doing, because I think that essentially North Korea does not react well to favorable and generous gestures. They only react to pressure.
0: Okay, I'm going to put words in your mouth. I asked you whether they're being naive. You said no, they're not. Uh, And then you're guessing that this is the strategy. Uh, Let me ask you this. If you were in a position of advising, and maybe you are, I hope you are, um, would you advise a a second meeting meeting, given the events that have occurred after the first?
2: I think a second summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un at this time is not in the best interest of the United States or the international community. What we're doing is we're legitimizing Kim further, Um, we're giving him time to stall, and we're also giving him time to work with Moon Jae-in, the South Korean president, to undermine South Korean democracy. Moon is very anti-American, pro-North Korean, and and he's been doing a lot to um, subvert the notion of freedom in South Korea. He's allowing North Korean thugs basically to run free in the South, doing a number of things that are inconsistent I, with being President of South Korea.
0: Can I, can, um, I, so, can, I, can I interrupt you on that? I just, What does it mean for the President of South Korea to be very sympathetic to North Korea? How, how can that be?
2: Well, Moon Jae-in uh, is from a generation in South Korea that is generally anti-American. The generations that are older are very pro-American because they remember the Korean War. Okay. Generations um, after Moon's Um, basically um, believe in South Korea as their country, not Korea. But Moon Jae-in believes that he um, needs to uh, unify Korea, that he will be the one to accomplish that historic task. And although every Korean leader, since the division of the country in 1945, every Korean leader has supported unification, at least in general terms, Moon Jae-in is the first Korean leader to accept the unification uh, proposals of Um, the other Korea. Wow! And so Moon is basically, you know, as far as I'm concerned, um, he's not our friend, he's an adversary, and we should be treating him as such.
0: Wow, this generational thing is interesting. I take small comfort in knowing that uh, we not only don't teach history in our country, but apparently they're not teaching it in Korea either, huh? South Korea.
2: Well, you know, in in that generation, they're the ones who fought for South Korean democracy against the generals. And they perceived that the United States was on the side of the generals. There was a lot of diplomacy, including uh, and especially that of Ronald Reagan, um, to ease the generals aside and to make sure that they would allow democracy. Um, But many South Korean activists didn't see that, and as well, um, the many of that generation that are just generally pro-North Korean. So you put that together, it's a toxic brew, and it means that American diplomacy is in trouble uh, in uh, South Korea, as are South Korean citizens.
0: Well, let's come back then to the meeting. If the president is – I'm picking up on what you said earlier – is ready to at some point drop the hammer, then – and you said, you know, giving it, where he's giving him time, he's giving him time. This meeting's coming right up here, a couple of weeks. Um, why not have the meeting now, not give him more time, and say, hey, this is the second meeting. Now stop messing around, get on the, get with the program, or there's going to be trouble.
2: I'd like to deliver that message, um, but I think that he is going to accept some signs of progress, which I believe ultimately are meaningless. So, for instance, the North Koreans could promise to close their Yongbin reactor which is the only place that they produce plutonium. But that reactor dates back to the early 1980s. Soviet design, it is more dangerous for the North Koreans to operate it than anything. And so they need to close it on their own. And I don't think we should be giving them concessions for doing what they normally would do on their own. Um, So I think that essentially we're at a point where we should be telling the North Koreans, um, give us the timetable for disarmament, uh, disclose all your facilities, and let's start to move lickety split, split. But that's not going to happen. Um, so you know, I, I think this second summit is um, not uh, a good thing for us.
0: Okay, tell me uh, the the deals. The, the I'm sorry, the negotiations apparently fairly intense negotiations that are going on between the U.S. and the Chinese on trade and tariffs and so on. Does this have anything to do? Uh, with what we're talking about with the second summit with Kim Jong-un?
2: I think the Chinese are trying to um, put the two together because that has been their traditional diplomacy, to say that they'll help on North Korea if we give them concessions on something else. Um, If I were President Trump, I'd say, look, uh, you're going to help us on North Korea, whether you like it or not, and this has nothing to do with trade. Got to remember that although we talk about these being trade discussions – these are really discussions about the remedies that the Trump administration has imposed for the theft of U.S. intellectual property. Right. This is a criminal act, right. and um, I think that this is very different from North Korea.
0: Some of the interpretations, Gordon, and I don't think I've heard you on this, I've heard others, are that the U.S. has uh, got the upper hand here. And I don't know whether people meant they're doing better, they're outdealing the Chinese, or we have the upper upper hand because of what you just said we can catch them red-handed uh, for, for high-handed dealing, you know, given all the things they've done.
2: Yeah, the, um, we have clearly the upper hand in these negotiations if you look at the objective factors. Uh, the Chinese need us, um, and they need access to the U.S. market. If you look at Beijing's own figures, uh, understate um, Chinese exports to the U.S., uh, last year China's merchandise trade surplus with the U.S. accounted for 91.9%. Of its overall merchandise surplus, Wow um, Beijing's numbers do not include shipments to the United States through Hong Kong, in other words, stuff that just transshipped through the Hong Kong ports. I mean when you include those and our commerce department does, I'm sure that number is going to go over 100%. And when our Commerce Department issues those numbers in the not-too-distant future, we're going to see that China is completely reliant on the American market. This is important because uh, China's exports to the rest of the world, they're facing softening markets everywhere because of the global economy. And that means that they'll become even more dependent on the U.S. uh, this year than they were last year.
0: Are you therefore optimistic about the ultimate outcome of these talks? Do You think they're gonna be good for the US?
2: Um, there's one factor which is the most important factor which uh, I don't have a good read on, and that is political will. Now, yeah. uh, I think President Trump um, has that will, but uh, early indications are that, that he's going to give the Chinese a much better deal than, um, he, would, um, than he would have to. Um, okay. So uh, there's a big concern. Remember, you got Steven Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary, is one of the two people who are now in Beijing, Uh, the other being Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative. The American Republic is never safe when Steve Mnuchin is in the room with Chinese officials. He will agree to anything, um, no matter how bad for the U.S. Um, And so, you know, I'm very concerned. How
0: come? Chinese markets, uh, Wall Street, is that it?
2: He has a Wall Street background. He has a particular view that, you know, you've got to accommodate the Chinese, um, that U.S. intellectual property theft doesn't matter. Um, He just wants a deal. And so, therefore, I think he's pushing the president in very much the wrong direction. And my concern is that President Trump will accept uh, Mnuchin's recommendations to actually stitch up an agreement. The Chinese are not going to honor any agreement. And as a matter of fact, even the agreements they're talking about probably would not survive World Trade Organization um, objections because they are um, discriminatory on their face. So there's so many problems with this. And one more thing, Bill. We should not be negotiating with criminals in the first place. That's yeah. what we're talking about. We're talking yeah. about the theft of U.S. intellectual property.
0: Okay. Okay. All right. Clear enough. Interesting about Mnuchin. Um, I've heard this. I've heard this in other places as well. Let's uh, shift hemispheres. Um, I uh, I, don't, I don't want to disclose who it was, but yesterday uh, I was with a, an old friend who's uh, a former ambassador uh, from uh, prominent South American country, and. He's still in Washington, holds a a prominent position here. Uh, And uh, he was saying, you really have to address this Venezuela thing. And I said, well, we're supporting the right person, aren't we? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, and we're, you know, we're friendly with Colombia and other countries and supporting. He said, yeah. He said, that's not it. He said, you're not going to have any resolution of this uh, if you allow, you allow China and Russia to have the kind of influence that they have and are seeking to get more. Uh, They they can't be there. You can't solve this problem in any kind of satisfactory way while they're major players in the scene. Comment?
2: The Trump administration should not be bringing the Chinese and the Russians into these discussions about the future of Venezuela um, because they are malign influences. We're talking about the restoration of democracy. I don't know what Beijing and Moscow have to contribute to that discussion at all. Also, we do not want to legitimize their presence in our hemisphere where they're acting in bad ways. So, you know, this is, you know, the United States um, has a policy that we are just not going to allow Powers from outside the hemisphere to establish neo-colonial relationships. That's ba- the Monroe Doctrine, can we which back- the Trump administration was good to actually reinstitute after the Obama administration um, got rid of it in 2013.
0: Can we, so- get, can we back up a minute because I may have gotten ahead of the audience a little bit because um, I've been reading more background on this. As people in the U.S. watch the news, they see you know there was Chavez, there was Maduro. This bad guy, and then they got this new guy um, whom we're supporting. But what has been the presence of the Chinese and Russians? Where are they? What are they doing? If we could back up and just fill us in a little bit on that.
2: The Chinese and Russians have military presences of one type or another in Venezuela. So, for instance, the Chinese have a satellite tracking um The Russians have access to Venezuelan uh, airfields. Um, and so, you know, this was dramatically highlighted in December when two uh, r- a Russian um, uh, blackjack bombers, these are the Mach 2, very sleek-looking right. bombers, uh, the cross between the B-1 and the Concorde, these two bombers landed at an airfield near Caracas. And when they left, these two bombers buzzed the U.S. west coast. Um, so we have a direct interest in what happens in Venezuela. And also the Chinese and Russians have a robust economic relations. Um, both uh, Russia and China um, are on the hook for tens of billions of dollars um, that the Venezuelans don't necessarily have a way to pay back. And so we have um, um, very strong military and economic ties uh, that Moscow and Beijing maintain with Caracas.
0: What do we do? We tell them to leave. They're not going to leave. That, that's not enough, is it? How do you get them
2: out? I think you get them out by what the Trump administration has been doing. Um, you know, a lot of people complain that uh, we are inserting ourselves into this. No, we're not. There are two people in Venezuela who claim to be president, Maduro and uh, uh, Juan Guaido. And, and um, actually, uh, Juan Guaido has the much better constitutional argument because uh, Maduro's election, re-election last year was um, constitutionally flawed beyond repair. So the U.S. has got to do something, and what we've been doing is rallying the region um, and Europe uh, to recognize the real president of, of Venezuela. Uh, And so we've just got to continue the pressure, and we've got to make it clear to the Chinese and Russians that they have no role in the resolution of this crisis, and that uh, the end state is they're going to be out of Venezuela.
0: I got you. I was uh, in the State Department the other day. I was coming out, and I ran into my old friend, Elliot Abrams, who is now, as you know, the special envoy to Venezuela. It makes me hopeful because he's smart and experienced and kind of tough Reagan doctrine guy. Uh, you might have seen how he was roughed up by some of the new Democrats in, uh, in his hearing uh, the other day.
2: Yeah. Um, Abrams is the right person for this. Um, he knows the region. Um, he's got the right attitudes on this. He's got the backing of the Trump administration, which has the right policies. Um, so we should be hopeful that uh, at some point, and I don't know if it's tomorrow or next week or the month after that, But we should be hopeful that there will be a resolution that is good for the people of Venezuela and good for the region as well, because we can see that uh, we have an opportunity uh, to advance democracy very close to our borders, and that can only be a good thing.
0: Right. Gordon, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. We know how busy you are with all these events. Appreciate it so much.
2: Oh, well, Bill, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, so please keep calling.
1: Thank you,
0: sir. Bye-bye.
1: You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show.
0: All right, time to jump in with Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. I am a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Joel, welcome back to the
3: show. Uh, Always good to be back, Bill. Thank you.
0: When you're not here, the audience asks where you are. Um, I I already got email saying, ask Joel about the train. It's in the news. (laughs) Governor Newsom and President Trump and... What happened to this train? What is the story on this train? I thought there was a train going from uh, LA to Las Vegas, which I had more interest in,
3: but (laughs) well, they, they had a train that started out at a couple billion and, uh, Went up to 20 billion, and and um, the best you know the the, the the fake news of the train is they 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 canceled, the new governor canceled it. It's now going to cost 77 billion, but that's probably not even true either because by the time they ever started building it, it probably would have been 177 billion. But it is uh, it's a it was this it was this ridiculous notion of to get people on a train instead of an airplane to go from Francisco to L.A. Um, the train would have taken you no. Know, two to three hours to get there and and an airplane flight takes about an hour and 15 minutes so god only knows why california wanted to spend close to a hundred billion dollars to increase the travel time to go between two cities uh and out and and spend that that kind of money thankfully they give us these stories
0: Actually, I was serious. Wasn't there a bullet train proposal from L.A. to
3: Vegas? Uh, there's, yeah, there's, there is that too. Was oh, that, that still that going too, on? People, uh, <laughs> no, no. Uh, okay. People can still drive. People can still take a a, 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 a one hour airplane flight. All right, but that was uh, abandoned. You know, okay. they are not going right. to build a train from L.A. to Vegas. Um, All right. So this, the only way a train works is you need to have it in some – you need to have a train in, in some city like uh, 20 to 30 million people um, yeah. from one place to another. We don't have any cities in America yeah. yet that has 20 to 30 million people, All right. uh, although people would like to see that. I think some, some progressives so, would like to
0: see that. So was it abandoned, Joel, because the cost uh, was just too much? The president – Said uh, to the governor or tweeted, he said, "Well, give us our money back because we gave you four or five
3: billion for this thing." <laughs> um, it is, it is. Uh, in California, nothing's ever abandoned; it's just delayed until they can figure out a new story. I got you. to uh, to describe it, but uh, as of a it's February 2019, no train. All right. Well, I thought
0: this was interesting. Um, I don't know if anybody else made this connection; kind of obvious the abandoning of this train project just when we heard train was going to replace the airplane, but, but but apparently not here, you know, Um, I just have three words to say to you that I'm going to sit back and listen. Green new deal. Wow.
3: The green new deal. Um, It's going to be uh, our, our current generation's uh, effort, a world war two effort. We're going to fight this world war okay um so uh alexandra uh, the, the riveter new... <laughs> exactly. like rosie the riveter. okay <laughs> rosie the riveter that's right uh, abandon everything so we can uh make planes uh, I, that's kind of funny though i guess in world war ii we were making planes now we're going to get rid of planes but, exactly uh, yeah the green new deal um so uh, the new congresswoman uh AOC as he likes to be referred to, who just got elected with the grand total of sixteen thousand seven hundred and seventy four votes right and now but but she now has three million Twitter followers so yeah she's basically uh, I, I I don't really need to, to to pile on like we've already heard about how ignorant, how impractical, how outrageously expensive how how nonsensical and and loony this, this idea, is. we've heard that. But what is interesting, and, and, and you and I have have talked about it uh, uh, with each other recently, is she, while she is all those things, she's all those kind of loony things, she's really carrying the mantle of about 100 years of some of these academics and Nobel Prize winners, of some of their policies that they really believe in. And, and those policies are really simple. Um, the world has uh, has has, needs population control we need too many people we're going to overtax our energy supplies and you know a hundred years ago we're going to overtax our food supplies and the other basic concept that's been promoted for a hundred years from progressive liberals is we don't want people living all over the place we want them concentrated in in a major urban metropolitan area so you know she came out and she said you know this is a, a you know a climate climate change is a transportation problem meaning let's not have people all over the place let's put them in one place and, and concentrate them so we can eliminate and reduce transportation costs and number 2 is which is also now spoken regularly is too many people in this world too many people are going to ruin the climate ruin the environment decimate and and overtax our food supply so it's basically a population control and a, and, a, and a transportation issue, which they're promoting. And your listeners are smart enough to go confirm this, but if people don't believe that that's what their real agenda is, they have their head in the sand, because that has been. And it goes all the way back to as early as, uh, well, John Maynard Keynes, who all these ac- current economists, Paul Krugman, Joseph Stiglitz, William Nordhaus, they all admire John Maynard Keynes. Well, he wrote in the 1930s the, uh, a paper called The Economic Consequences of Peace, Meaning, oh, my God, if we have peace, what's going to happen to us? Well, what he said, he said what's going to happen to us is too many people are going to be doing too well. They're going to be consuming too much. They're going to be eating too much, and they become a crisis. This is a this, is a, this is very scary proposals. No more fossil fuels none no more get rid of them
0: now in the uh i believe in the proposal or in an appendix the pro- proposal uh and some of this has been revised i didn't see anything about the children but I accept your point about kind of backup here from other sources but i did see some very mean comments or implicitly mean comments
3: about cows <laughs> the bad day to be a cow yeah it's uh it reminded me of the Chick-fil-A commercials where they have the cows on the billboard saying, you know, eat more chicken. Eat more chicken, uh, yeah. <laughs> <but> <laughs> what's, the, what's the cow problem here? Uh, well, I guess, uh, I guess uh, cows, um, they're big. Uh, they, they, uh, they pass gas because they eat, and they obviously uh, create waste. And I guess somebody, I guess there's a new college or course you can take in the universities in America now, is to go figure out the uh, the flatulence and the uh, and the and the waste created by cows and do some sort of calculation and say, oh my God, they're they're contributing all this methane <laughs> and CO2 emissions. To
0: my now. guess is that course is more likely at Princeton or NYU than at the University of
3: Iowa. <laughs> my guess, my guess is that's where it would be. Yeah, maybe Columbia. Maybe Yale, uh-huh. um, yeah, that's, that's so I saw the, Charles uh, Grassley from
0: Iowa, and he 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 took up for the cow he said i I realize a lot of people in this town, Washington, believe that cows grow in supermarkets, you know that's where they <laughs> come from, but he said actually they
3: they come from other places like Iowa yeah and and uh, a lot of other countries have cows too, um uh, South America and the like uh, so we, Iowa, Middle America is, is not the only places where cows exist, which which um, which kind of leads to um, you know it, it, we, we can joke a little bit about this loony, lunacy. However, the Green New Deal advocates and there's some pretty uh, pretty uh, oh, there's pretty substantial uh, politicians who signed on to this. They really believe this stuff, and but the the, the other thing that has been omitted from the Green New Deal uh, conversation, particularly from the advocates is, okay, uh, we have this aspirational goal. We wanna stop using fossil fuels. They haven't asked who is actually using and increasing their use of fossil fuels. Um, and that's, that answer is pretty simple. It's China and India. In Southeast Asia, um, if you really wanted to, if, if, if they were if, if AOC and her and her group were really really serious about this World War II effort, because World War II presumes you're going to have a war worldwide, they would go straight over to Delhi, India, to Beijing, China, and all the other China's got six or eight cities in the top 20 population in the world, they would go right over there and they would say, "Stop. Cease, desist using fossil fuels now. Uh, China uses as much coal annually as every other country in the world. They use about 50% of the world's coal. Their increase of natural gas and LNG and oil and coal and nuclear exceeds every other country's, by far every other country's increase year by year by year. Yeah. So... I'd like them to go right over to President Xi right now. Get there next week. we We still have planes. I want you to stand there and tell them, you're part of our world war. We are, I mean, do they want to declare war on China? I think that's what she's saying. If, if you want to stop, the United States has had a reduction of CO2 emissions. Over the last 40 years, the six top kind of particulates that the EPA measures, uh, there's all all kinds of different sorts of bad things that the EPA says we ought to reduce. Since the 1970s, the United States has had anywhere from a 60 to 80 percent reduction of all of those. Uh, emissions and particulates that the EPA finds very serious, while almost a tripling of our economy. We we should be celebrating the increased population in the United States, the increased energy usage with the reduction of emissions in the United States. And if you really wanted to solve CO2 emissions that have been increasing in the world, go to India, go to China, stand up there and make these demands. All right. I
0: want to come back to something you mentioned in passing. So I think it's very important. By the way, one last joke here. On your way to China when you stop in India, you better put that butcher knife for cows away because the cow's pretty sacred in India. Yes, yeah. So very I w- sacred. I wonder if I wonder if anyone has asked AOC or company about their insensitivity to Indian religion here and saying get rid of the cow <laughs> That's a very
3: uh good question. Good question. I think uh, when she's uh, when 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 you have an opportunity to talk to her uh, 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 or or some of your friends maybe maybe you should ask her that. Yeah. Uh, she might she might act like she can't hear the question though, yeah. but Yeah.
0: Uh, I mean no no one on her side is going to raise the question of the you know, insens- insensitivity to children. You know the one child thing. Uh, no. I remember. No, they I, won't. I remember walking the beach uh, in North Carolina and seeing a sign that if you disturb a turtle nest and a baby turtle, it's a hundred thousand dollar fine. But not the same in. Um, with a baby. Indeed, apparently, in, by the light of some Democrats, not even a baby who's just been born. But that aside, I want to come back to what you said earlier about AOC. And when she released these ideas, no matter the, the slim, if any, hold they have on reality in terms of when you look at the, them in terms of an, an analysis and, and look at the science, the physics, the plausibility, the economics. What about the political viability? Two comments here, Joel. One, I was shocked to see how many people were standing behind her, how many suits, as we'd say. You know, Washington establishment, swamp types. Ed Markey from Massachusetts. Now he's very liberal. I also know him. He's a very smart guy, but, you know, very liberal. He, you know, almost 100% endorsement. Jeff Merkley from uh, Oregon. Two senators. There may have been other senators. A lot of members of Congress endorsing this stuff. Four presidential candidates, I believe, have endorsed this. Uh, These ideas, when these ideas like the Green New Wave and Medicare for all, single payer, um, other ideas in this in this uh, rollout were presented for approbation of the American public. A lot of them got support, uh, especially the Democrat Party, especially among young people. So, okay, they may not hold up factually in the real world, but they hold up politically, maybe, or at least on first blush. That worries me. And people say, well, that will never come to pass. Yeah, well, I remember one of the smartest conservative guys in Washington. I had lunch several years ago, and he said, believe me, American people are not going to elect Barack Hussein Obama to be president of the United States. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, is it, am I right to be worried? I, I, I'm having an ongoing conversation about this uh, with our, our mutual friend, Conrad Black, who just wrote a column saying he, he, he said, I'm having a debate with an eminent uh, former cabinet member, um, certainly I'm former, I don't know about eminent, but he said, you know, he said, he said don't worry about this. These things will fall of their own weight. Will they? I mean, I've seen no. lots of things believed. No,
3: Bill, Bill you're you're a thousand percent right. I know that it's more than a hundred percent, but um, you have every right. Your instinct is correct to worry about this. And I can uh, I, I can just point you to one or two really, really current basic things. Venezuela, we've heard, heard about uh-huh. the collapse uh-huh. of Venezuela. Uh-huh. But one thing that, about a, about a dozen years ago, another Nobel Prize economist, Joseph Stiglitz, gave a speech in Venezuela and said, Hugo Chavez is pretty much ensuring, and he's wonderful, he praised him, he admired him for distributing benefits of education and health to the poor. He's, he, he has he the best way to ensure sustainable growth is a redistribution of wealth of this country. And, and, and what, what's behind your concern is the Green New Deal is just another, it's just another pop-up store, so to speak, to test the waters on marketing this idea. But what it really is is it has to do with the liberal idea that you redistribute wealth. And the economists, Nobel Prize winning economists, who, who, who advise these people who are elected officials, say, and Joseph Stiglitz is one of the most prominent, that this is the way to do it. And he just said that 12 years ago. We, ha- we can absolutely look and see what happened in Venezuela when they did that. Yeah. Okay, so I don't want to get bandied, you know, uh, uh, have people uh, get angry that I bring up Venezuela again. Alberta, Canada. Alberta, Canada, it's not a totalitarian regime last time I checked, but Alberta was producing a lot of oil and gas. The country of Canada required Alberta to give uh, give some of their, 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 their revenue to other less fortunate provinces uh, in the country. Um, so they were making money, they distributed it. To other provinces. Then the government basically decimated and has shut down almost Alberta's oil and gas industry to where the price of Western Canadian select oil is 20% of what it is in, in, in around the world. It just decimated the industry. So you now have Alberta, Canada and the residents there up in arms up in arms about this and they're not going to take it anymore and it's going to be a. but what happened to them is what you fear it's a mini venezuela we only have to look at france and see yellow vest protesters what are they protesting increased gas taxes yeah. on fuel this is a very contentious issue the one person the one person one group of people in the green new deal that was not mentioned was middle class people and poor people. Poor people, their answer was, we're just going to give you stuff. Middle-class people weren't mentioned. But to your point, these things happen. We've, we've seen it happen in Venezuela, where this, these crazy ideas were implemented. We've seen it happen on a lesser scale in Alberta, Canada. Uh, we see it happening in Europe. Um, this is this is something to be taken seriously because there's a group of people that really believe this stuff. Yeah,
0: I mean, we saw this with the Great Socialist Revolution. We saw this with the the Great Step Forward, the Great March Forward. We saw this with you know a, a, any number of times. I mean, the capacity of human beings to fall for nonsense is is part of history. Yes. And yes, it is. I'm sorry to say we're not immune from it. You know, Victor yep. Hugo said there's nothing like power of an idea whose time has come. I often quote that, but I think one has to update it and say even a bad idea, you know, if people feel its time has come. And I've I have heard since this press conference of AOC and Ed Markey and others, I have heard, overheard young people talking about this with a, a lot of excitement, a lot of excitement. And you know, you're tempted to say, how can you believe this nonsense? Well, part of it is just, people want to believe it. Part of it is they hate Trump. And so anything that's against Trump, you know, or an attack on Trump or different from Trump, they'll, they'll buy. But uh, I'm I'm going to go back to, you know, what I know, and it's not Joseph Stiglitz. It's the stuff you know about, Reid. I'll go back to secondary schools and the middle schools, what kids are taught about America. And they're taught that, you know, fossil fuel people are terrible and corporate America is terrible. And, you know, automobiles and planes are terrible. And, uh, you know, it, it just seems to me, and when you look at the numbers, a lot of millennials are buying into this. A lot of Democrats are buying into this. Some Republicans are buying into this. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you we, know, I'm, 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 fe- I'm fearful of this. And I, I, here's my point: it's not that we should take it seriously in the sense of, ah, uh, wow, these are good ideas. But we should take it seriously, in, in that the task is not just to dismiss them with the left hand and say it's ridiculous, forget it. But we've got to go through and
3: explain why it's ridiculous. Yes, you're right. We we, we need to, and our our uh, the education system is not educating our. Kids. We've talked about this, and you know this better than anyone. It's not educating anyone about any of these ideas. But um, we do have to take it seriously. And America, America used to be admired uh, by many people from other countries. And in particular, we've talked about uh, Tocqueville in the 1800s, yep. he said he, yep. he loved, he, he, he admired America, that there was no no concentrated one great city like Paris or London. It was, right. it was a dispersing of intelligence and power all throughout yep. the country. Yeah, No central control over expression of opinion or ideas or business. It was a disbursement all over the country of, of, of those opportunities. And here we come back again where our current-day, modern-day Nobel Prize-winning economists are saying, nah, let's, let's be like them. Let's be like Paris. Let's be like London. Let's be like Shanghai, Mumbai. I mean, this is, these, are, these are nonsensical ideas, but they are ideas proffered by people who start the conversation, who get introduced by so-and-so has won such-and-such prize who therefore knows. And no, they don't know. And, you know, the argument becomes compelling, as you're you're alluding to, that we have poor people, middle-class people, and rich people. Okay? Rich people, by the way, oil and gas is bad. Energy is bad. Rich people are bad. Well, you know what also is bad? What also is bad is the 1.2 billion people in the world who have no electricity, have no energy at all. Yeah, yeah. And then another billion people who are living in energy poverty, who can't afford to pay their utility bills, so they need a voice. Uh, you're providing it. And, uh, well, you're 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 <laughs> you're helping. Uh, George
0: Orwell wrote once: "Sometimes the first duty of responsible and intelligent men is a restatement of the obvious." So, yes. we, we've got to restate the obvious. We've got to restate the laws of physics and how people move and what. What energy it takes and 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 what what the world would look like if you depended entirely on wind and energy and green energy, and we've got to go through these arguments uh, I'm not capable we of do. making a lot of them but, but but the work must be done um you know i I remember Tom Wolf wrote an essay too about remembering what we've forgotten you know uh, yes. and yes. and 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 we forgot a lot of this stuff. Well, one reason is, you know, quite apart from mist misteaching American history, they don't teach science anymore in the schools. You don't have to really know anything about science or the way chemicals work or how physics works, you know? So, um, yeah. you know, I, I keep coming back to, you know, that way they say, you've heard me say it, every anthropologist loves his own tribe. And I'm about the yeah. schools, but I am convinced that, and I don't mean to put down then and, and put in a secondary role the Stiglitzes and the Krugmans, because there's trickle down. As you know, these guys say it at the universities. It gets picked up in the schools of education and passed right on into the social studies textbooks.
3: Yes, and and uh, and the kids don't aren't aware of it. And, That's right. And the easy argument, the easy argument is uh, what we talked about. You know, there's uh, uh, there's this uh, this need for um, to, to to deal with uh, climate change, but this the, the under the undercurrent is rich and poor, and we're going to help you yes, sir. and the other people who are not helping you are racist yes sir they are bad I, I i was having a conversation with my son last week we were watching one of the cable news shows and somebody was on there saying don't know who it was but they were saying you know conservatives republicans such and such as they're, they're the racist and i sat there and i and i said so um the Democrats had a senator who was a grand wizard of the KKK, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first Supreme Court justice was a member of the KKK. And I thought I was talking to myself. My son went on the computer as we were there, real time, Googled it, and he looked at me. And says, "Oh my God, that's true. How come I don't know about that?" Yeah, how come I don't know about that? How old is your son? I'm Twenty-five years old. Yeah. And I said, "Well, I hope you hope you remember this time. Keep when you hear stuff." Keep 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 yeah. researching. Yeah, good place to
0: end. Um, good place to end. Uh, Joel, thank you. To be continued. Thank you, Bill. Always wonderful. To Make be any you. progress on that train out there in California? Let us
3: know, will you? Uh, uh, we're going to have some uh, manufacturing that train. I, I yeah. doubt that they were actually manufacturing it in California. Probably some far flung place where. Where uh, deplorables were were working.
0: Oh, one thing I will say, and last joke is, I did finally find something to agree with with Senator Maisie Hirono from Hawaii, <laughs> who's just been awful. Did you see her comments? Uh, wh- I don't know which one are you referring to. Well, she to? said, I, yeah, I'm kind of sympathetic, but this idea of getting rid of planes, she said, you know, I come from Hawaii. <laughs> I mean, if if California has trouble building rail from San Francisco to L.A., rail to
3: Maui, you know. Well, they they built. Maybe they'll take the the, the guys who built the tunnel between uh, uh, Paris and London. And maybe they'll figure out how they could do <laughs> That's that. That's a hell of a tunnel you're talking about. <laughs> it's quite a tunnel. Right. So could I? I just I to say one more thing. Please, it just, just occurred to me. Well, it's. You, you've quoted Victor Hugo and all these wonderful people. Um, you may or may not – in my day in high school, there was a musician named Frank Zappa. You bet. He was kind of crazy. Yeah. And uh, he had something that reminded – I thought of it when I when I first saw the Green New Deal come out. And he had this uh, this album. He had a character called – a fictional character, character called The Central Scrutinizer scrutinizer was the his job was to enforce all laws that had not yet been passed there you go and that was his job and there i thought oh my god this is what we're seeing
0: there you go there you
3: go <laughs> perfect thank you joel take care bill
0: that does it for today's show to catch up on previous episodes of the show go to bill bennett claude i think people can follow me on twitter at william j bennett yes Absolutely. and i think they can like me on facebook just search Bill Bennett. Uh, I want people to feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. And if they do, I believe it's Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. Yes, that's it. Please mm-hmm. share this podcast with your family and friends. We are growing, Claude. Yes. Getting more and more people listening. Absolutely. Still saying. growing. The guy served me wine the other day at a restaurant. ordered a bottle of wine. Inexpensive. Okay. And the, guy, the best kind. The wine guy <laughs> said, I listen to your podcast. Get out of here. There you go. Why do I sound shy? Why am I shy? Oh, yeah, yeah. Of course you're, he listens. You're supposed to be. Yeah. Of course. <laughs>
1: right. Well, that was it
0: Seth said during our radio show. He said, We've got literally hundreds of people. In. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think at that point we were 2.75 million or something. Right. Anyway, folks, we'll catch up next week. Thanks for listening.